1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
4: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go right to our next guest, Hans Dow, CEO of the Mitchell Madison Group. I wanted to talk to him because we had some... Weaker than expected, much weaker than expected economic data come out of China overnight, and that's kind of spooking markets a little bit. So we said, let's talk to somebody who kind of does this stuff. But here, so he's the CEO of Mitchell Madison Group, but here's the scam. Jackson, Wyoming, since 1994. <laughs> you were doing the remote thing, Hans, before it was the cool thing to do. How are you working this scam to be working from Jacksonville? I mean, that's the first question.
5: Oh, you know, the, the truth is even worse. I split my time between Jackson Jacksonville and Malibu. I just got back. From oh, Malibu. you're killing so us. So <laughs> it is even worse.
4: All right. Well, the good stuff is, Matt, he has uh, got his undergraduate from the University of Michigan. You'll be happy about Ugh, he's that. he's a Wolverine. But even more impressive for me, MBA from the Tuck School. The Tuck School is such an awesome school at Dartmouth Out of Dartmouth for, yeah. for yeah. the MBA program. And the, all the Tucks that I know are really smart, and they're super-duper loyal to their school for some unknown reason. Hans, what's going on in China here? This data, I mean, it just seems they've got some challenges over there. What do you
5: make of it? Well, I think what's going on in China is just the, the, the result of COVID lockdowns, that the insane zero COVID policy has taken effect. Obviously, we've all seen that. Uh, but it's also a significant wealth effect from the property crash, right? I mean, if the population has been, it's highly leveraged, it's invested in property, it's not going well, that is, of course, going to put a crimp on spending. And I think in, in the medium to longer term, you will see an impact of the rising interest rates in the West, that would just simply have the normal micro-economic, macroeconomic impact that it always has, slowing demand, and it's going to slow down. The problem with China is that their population satisfaction depends highly on growth, right? So they're in a bit of a trouble.
3: So what does that mean, though, for us? What does it mean for you and— Jackson, Wyoming. I mean, I saw a a darn
4: thing. He's just, well, I saw a a
3: headline that said, no one is immune, um, JP Morgan (laughs) says. And I thought, wow, they're really playing this a little bit uh, dramatic. (laughs) And then this morning, you know, everybody was, it's all in the Asia focus. And of course it was our top headline, but we're only off, you know, 13 points on the S&P 500. Is it really that important to markets in the U.S.?
5: Hard to say. I mean, it's, it's, sort of, you, you mentioned Dartmouth, right? And MBAs. It was really interesting. This whole thing reminds me a little bit of, of Japan in the late, you know, 80s and the 90s. And mm-hmm. even in the 90s, I remember going to class and listening to professors, you know, telling us how the Japanese system of more government direction might be superior. And then the next class, you would learn about the free market microeconomics, the normal way. And if you pointed out the, the dichotomy, they'll just be like, well, Maybe that's a different class, right? So I think what's going on is, is, is economic reality. The Western system, free capitalism is right. China is not playing the game correctly. They have tremendous problems with uh, demography. I think they are going to be a long-term declining power, right? And uh, we're going to have to deal with that, right? I think it would be very, very dangerous. Declining powers uh, are unstable. They do crazy things.
3: As we've um, seen see in it, Ukraine,
5: yeah, you see it in while well, you see it in Ukraine, you see it in, you could see it in Taiwan, which would be much more of a problem, China obviously much bigger, much more interdependent, and i don 't know if we can as business people count on you know governments solve this problem, so I think what I see and what i what I would do and this is my background supply so chain management is advising corporations that what what they have done the last twenty thirty years getting it to China. Has to be done in some way going backwards because really bad stuff could happen, right? And when really bad stuff could ha- happen, it's a game of musical chairs, and there's not enough industrial capacity on the planet to replace China for everybody mm. at the same time quickly.
3: Hans, when you look at the biggest U.S. manufacturers, um, is it scary? Are too are too many of them too deep in?
5: I think so. I think overall, I think overall, it is. Um, it's too much right i mean you can't you can't replace china with something else in the in the short term it's not possible right so but that's also on the on the, uh, it's also a good news story in some ways because if there's you know a great degree of mutual dependency creates political stability right so i for example i envision that when biden talks to z they're going to talk about removing tariffs right i mean biden needs it for us inflation and china needs it for growth and they're going to figure out this taiwan thing
4: that's kind of where I wanted to go, uh, Hans. I mean, President Xi and President Biden are set to meet later this year. That seems like a big deal to me, at least. What would you like to see on the agenda, on the table for a discussion that maybe we could actually get something done?
5: Yeah, I think, like I said, I think it's in their mutual interest to uh, get better trade relations going. And I think they're going to do something on the tariff front. I'm pretty sure about that. I mean, it's it's in, in everybody's best interest, right? It it's, will certainly have a short-term positive impact on U.S. inflation, which is critical.
3: And, and I, I also wonder what kind of impact we'll have on China. You know, we spoke with a Chinese economist this morning who seemed very worried that, you know, Europeans and Americans would stop buying their goods or not buy their goods as much, and that's a big problem for them.
5: I can't imagine that. People will always always go for price, and most people don't even know what's made in China. So I find that a little bit hard to believe. Well,
3: no, the idea was that if we go into a recession, we just won't oh. have the oh. you know the, the purchasing power to, to keep up the kind of consumerism that we've been practicing.
5: No, I think that, like I said, that, I think that's going to happen. I think that's part of the reason why China might be slowing down, but I don't think that we're going to fall off a cliff here in the West or in the U.S.,
4: all right, Hans, great stuff. Really appreciate getting your perspective there. Hans Dow, CEO of the Mitchell Madison
0: Group. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading.
1: red and green
4: on the screen here to the market not sure what it wants to do here we've obviously had that big move off of the bottom after that brutal first half of the year for both stocks and bonds a lot of folks are scratching their heads saying okay now what let's check in with jay hatfield ceo founder and portfolio manager of the infrastructure capital advisors jay now what
6: good morning thanks for having me back on well it's a little bit complicated we had been constructive on stocks heading into earnings. And we were correct that earnings are relatively strong compared to expectations. And we do think the economy is relatively strong because of pandemic tailwinds. But the negatives are an erratic Fed. We think the 2% target is arbitrary and way too low. So they're gonna pursue that 2% target. They tend to focus on backward looking indicators like employment and CPI, whereas they should be looking at the money supply, which is down <clears throat> 15% already this year. And then finally, the other negative is we're headed into September, which is typically a terrible month for stocks, lack of information about earnings, and then you have a closing of the buyback window. So we're, we're relatively neutral to cautious on stocks here after this big run.
3: But you think, so, Jay, just to go back to the beginning, you don't have a negative outlook on the economy. You think the U.S. economy, even after um, two quarters of contraction, is still in a pretty strong place.
6: Yeah, the key facts there, if you look back at the 11 post-World War II recessions, they all had a crash in housing and autos. But we have a pandemic recovery tailwinds in that we're at record low housing inventories. 1.2 million units versus normal to 87,000 new cars versus a million. So the chances of mass layoffs in those cyclical sectors are zero. And then you have strong employment because we're moving from goods, which are mostly made overseas, to services, which are all provided in the U.S. and labor intensive. So strong job market and the normal sectors that crack all time lows for uh, inventories we so do see about the economy
3: <clears throat> we do see what looks like some real we- weakness in the tech sector and i don't know if that's because they you know overhired um last year or the beginning of this year but they're you know some of the biggest companies are cutting by 10 percent some of the growthier frothier companies cutting by 20 percent a lot of them are doing hiring freezes is this just a sector specific issue
6: we think so what is obviously entirely unique about this cycle is the pandemic. So during the pandemic, those were the big beneficiaries, but but of course, um, services was was getting smashed. So you're just seeing a rotation from those goods-producing companies, and also they have exp- exposure to foreign currency. You know, keep in mind, almost no one focuses on the fact that the Fed is already reduced the monetary base or money supply by 15% this year, which is the um, biggest decline since uh, the Great Depression. That's caused the dollar to skyrocket. So that's going to make those large cap exporters' earnings weaker. But if you look, they're not really doing mass layoffs, they're just hiring at a slower pace. So that's not enough to derail the U.S. economy. Jay,
4: you've had a long and varied career on Wall Street, buy side, sell side. One of the the industries that you've really focused on has been energy, uh, global power, Morgan Stanley, and so on. Mm-hmm. You know what we're really starting to understand here is we've got oil pulling back yet again. Now we're at 88 and change on WTI crude. It just seems like the supply and the demand are kind of out of whack. You know, as we make this transition to green energy, there's still a big demand for traditional energy, fossil fuels, and our good friends in Europe. Boy, they're going to have a tough winter. How do you think about? This economy and and how it's trying to manage the transition from fossil fuels to to, to green fuels seems like there's going to be some problems there.
6: Well, I think we've made a, a massive mistake by not recognizing that natural gas is a very clean fuel. It's the only efficient way to transport hydrogen because pure hydrogen, you have to cool to negative 451 degrees Fahrenheit to transport it whereas natural gas is only 250. So the Europeans blew the energy transition by not procuring enough natural gas, which then allows you to shut down coal. In the US, we, the free market did that. That's why we're the leader in the world for reducing carbon, not because of any policy coming from the government, but just because of the economics of having excess natural gas. So, but to your point, <clears throat> the we're relatively constructive on the oil market we're still projecting 90 to 110 but the key factor to watch is european natural gas prices they're trading at the equivalent of 400 dollars a barrel of oil on a btu basis so that's a huge support for the market and these china blips are usually temporary they're pretty sticky demand in china
4: right Yeah, it's interesting to see how this plays out. And again, we're going to be focusing on Europe this winter. It seems like it's going to be a big challenge for them. Jay Hatfield, CEO, founder, and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors, uh, giving us his thoughts on these markets. Matt, our next guest, you you and I, we we struggle with English, which is a challenge because we, we speak for a living. But our next guest speaks English and Hebrew. Okay, I get that. Then Russian and Ukrainian. I'm like, who really cares about that? But now... That is absolutely front and center. Dr. Ariel Cohen, senior fellow for the Atlantic Council, the Eurasia Center. Dr. Cohen, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I I guess we'd love to get an update on what you think the current status is in Ukraine. But what I'd really love to get is why did Putin do this? It just seems like a monstrous miscalculation here. But I'd love to get your perspective.
7: The dean of my alma mater, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, uh, former dean, uh, Admiral Stavridis, former Supreme Allied Friend Commander, of our show. Yeah, uh, former Supreme uh, Allied Commander NATO said that Putin realizes that he made a mistake. I met Putin 10 times. So this is kind of a guy who will never admit that he made a mistake, whether he realizes he made a mistake or not. There's some indications he may be realizing it, but he is desperate to, to save face. He's not going to give Ukrainians any quarter. So one would hope that we can extricate ourselves uh, out of this horrible war in a few months. But for that, Ukrainians need to deliver the Russians more blows, especially in the South, When where they are using the Western supplied long range range rockets to disrupt the Russian logistics and they're destroying methodically the key bridges. So if the Russian troops are, for example, on the left uh, bank of on the right bank of the Dnieper, they would pull out possibly because they don't want to stuck there without the bridges. Um, So the logistics is extremely important in this war. Uh, And there's another dimension that I'm very worried about, and that's the nuclear power stations. Remember, Ukraine is producing 50% of its electricity uh, through nuclear, um, contributing less to global emissions than many other countries. But the Russians and the Ukrainians are bombarding some of these um, stations, including the huge... Uh, power station in Zaporizhia, four reactors, uh, four units, and uh, the last thing we need is uh, one of these reactors to be punctured by a shell and have a radioactive emissions there. So, God forbid, so, you know, something a lot like Chernobyl. We don't want
3: that. So, Dr. Cohen, I, w- you know, initially I would think um, for the whole conflict there should be some back channel way to. Mm-hmm. Uh, communicate um, with Vladimir Putin, figure out a solution. Even if you can't get him to pull completely out of Ukraine, maybe you can say, hey, let's all avoid these nuclear power plants. Um, but then I wonder, how does the chain of command, how well does the chain of command actually work? How, how strong is the link? How, how um, efficient is communication? Or are, are these units on the ground really just operating on their own in a sense?
7: I don't think they're operating on their own. The Russian military is extremely centralized. Who is less centralized, actually, uh, are the Ukrainians. Uh, But what we've seen is that the Russians cut a deal with the Turks and with Ukraine, and they are going to allow the grain to flow out of Ukraine, out of the port of Odessa on the Black Sea, um, to the world markets. Very important, so we don't contribute to or the conflict doesn't contribute to people starving in Africa or something like that. And the next day, the Russian military is delivering a rocket strike on the port of Odessa. So questions were raised about that uh, and then it stopped. So hopefully the command and control chain in Russia uh, is still intact. However, uh, you raised a very important question. And that is who is communicating with the Russians. And we saw recently that Russia said that uh, Switzerland is not going to be the go-between because Switzerland imposed sanctions on Russia. And therefore, the Russians said they're not uh, impartial. So having a channel of communication it is important. Having people who could go back and forth like the late, great German uh, foreign minister, uh, uh, Genscher. Right. I think it's Frank, Di- yeah. Frank Dieter Hans Dieter Genscher, Hans Dieter Genscher
4: yeah. Yep. Hans, Hans Dieter Genscher. So, uh, Dr. Cohen, what— respect, it, Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, my, I guess the question is, how strong is the support within Russia for Putin and this war? I think about just our country here, when the dead bodies start coming back, That's when people start taking notice here. How strong is his support?
7: Remember Russia, the countries that lost 27 millions uh, in World War II, civilians and and military, uh, they do recognize that wars come with a body count. However, having said that, uh, a lot of Russian families have only one child. It's only one son. And uh, I do believe that there's more discontent, especially among the relatives, of the men who died, uh, but uh, Putin's regime is not unlike the Soviet uh, predecessors who kept a tight lid uh, on uh, the public opinion. But we, we see for now, for now, I stress, uh, the public support is anywhere between 60 and 80%. That's quite considered, considerable. But in the future, uh, the economic situation is going to deteriorate, and it is deteriorating we can see it right now with Western technology, management, investment, all drying up abruptly, and the Chinese are not capable, but don't want to replace uh, the Western economic partners. Russia will continue to deteriorate, and with that, the public support of this war will go down.
3: Just want to quickly ask about the gas. How difficult is it going to be this winter for the Europeans to access uh, Russian supplies?
7: You know it's not going to be pleasant however uh, the projections are that by december 95 percent of german um storage will be filled with gas and germany is a key country here yep. other countries will need to scramble the italians are getting more gas from from algeria on the existing pipeline they're putting more uh, pumping stations on that pipeline and countries like qatar and australia and others who have any extra LNG. And we in the United States can sell more LNG. There are more uh, regasification ships that are heading towards Europe. It will be more more expensive, but I do not believe it'll be a catastrophe. All right,
4: Dr. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate getting your informed insights. Dr. Ariel Cohen, he's a senior fellow, the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center, deep, deep, Uh, background and experience uh in european politics geopolitics
0: trading at schwab is now powered by ameritrade giving you even more specialized support than ever before like access to the trade desk our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check need assistance no problem Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading.
4: You know, last week we had NVIDIA. Uh, they disappointed with a big miss in revenue. Uh, they called out a slump in their gaming business. And I think that caused a lot of folks in the industry to kind of step back and say, all right, let's get a sense of where the gaming industry, which has been such a great growth story within the communication space, where that is right now, where it's going as we come out of the back end of this pandemic. So our next guest is really a timely one, and Hand, CEO and chairwoman, Of Super League Gaming. That is a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ. SLGG is a ticker you can put into your Bloomberg professional service and get uh, all the information you need on that. And thanks so much for joining us here. Um, Give us just kind of tell us what you guys are doing at Super League Gaming, what your company is all about, and kind of how you fit into this gaming ecosystem.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Super League started about eight years ago, and our focus was really on the fact that these days, if you, if you, you know, speak to young kids, pretty much everyone's a gamer. Over 80% of kids say that gaming is their favorite form of entertainment. And this was all pre-COVID, right? So it was already bigger than the film box office, bigger than TV. Um, and we were really focused on kind of debunking the myth of who these gamers are, because gaming these days isn't something that they're going to grow out of. It's very different than <clears throat> the gaming that we did as kids. It's it's um, not just you against the machine. It's actually <clears throat> got a fair amount of community and and um, commerce. It's really a place where kids are expressing their physical selves in this digital world, and so they see it as one blended life. And how we fit in is we really focus on what we call metaverse games or open-world gaming platforms, because that really speaks to kind of Generation Z and, and Gen Alpha these days. Um, they're not just there for the competition. They want to step into these games like Minecraft and Roblox. You know, Minecraft's been around for over a decade, um, and, and hundreds of millions of kids are spending a lot of their playtime in these worlds where they can um, create, they can become game designers and developers, but it's also the digital cul-de-sac. It's, it's where their friends are and where they want to interact with their digital selves as much as they want to interact with their physical physical life. So they kind of call it a digital world that we're living in. And so what I often say to brands and to investors is, is, you know, we're not talking about, um, you know, Metaverse Capital M and something that's kind of abstract and five to ten years away. Um, You know, these games have been around for some time, and this is where kids are, and what we do is we bring – Brands and advertisers into those worlds to create exciting experiences and, and content for them. So, uh,
3: how come investors don't seem to get the story or or believe in it? Judged by the stock performance, I mean, yeah, yeah, we no. had a huge jump um, it, during the pandemic, but let's leave that out. Mm-hmm. Um, we've still seen the stock come down to a dollar from. You know, leaving out the ten dollar peak, um, you know, six at least.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think some of this is just that fundamentally, when when we're kind of sitting in that nano cap space, you know, the stock doesn't have a lot of stability. That that kind of anomaly spike that we had that you pointed out, we became a bit of a meme stock during that time and got swept up in in what was happening with AMC and GameStop. Um, By the way, do you actively
3: work to shun that? Because if I Google SLGG, I'm I'm looking at, you know, all these meme stock um, kind of results and and not so much about the actual company and what you do.
2: Yeah, no. So that was definitely one of those kind of times where we had that kind of unusual spike. But but for us, really, I, I do agree with you that I think that right now you know the the market doesn't really um we're not getting the credit probably um that i i believe we would deserve for the kinds of step change revenue growth that we are showing and so i have to believe that as we get the more attention to the stock and and show those keep delivering those types of results that you know over time the share price will reflect that we went from you know we we went public when we were pre-revenue and so um, in 2020, we did about $2 million in revenue. Last year, about $11 million. This year, we gave guidance that we would do um, 20 to 22000000 million. We're beating analyst estimates and, and on plan to deliver those results. And so we feel like that step change, um, top-line um, growth that we continue to deliver against over time will be reflected in the, in the share price and the ultimate market cap of the company.
4: And what's your... Maybe like three to five year outlook for the esports business in general. Again, it's a, it's a business that you know a lot of investors aren't really familiar with, but it certainly has the growth characteristics that I'm sure they would like appreciate.
2: Yeah, you know the the esports category was really where we started as a company. We were really focused on creating a bit of a little league for youth. So think of esports as just competitive video gaming. Um, you know, a lot of projections were saying, hey, that's going to be about a three billion dollar business by 2024 that's not that big. We all know that, right? I mean, I ran a $3 billion P&L at BP globally, and it was small-ish. So, um, so that eSports category, most of that value is really talking about those, the establishment of those professional teams and leagues. You saw the recent IPO of FaZe Clan. Um, and so that is an exciting, um, but a very small subset What we started to do as a company really around the pandemic, and I think our response is something else that I think that over time investors will will give us Mm. credit for, um, is we really cast a much wider net. We said, look, we already have an interesting foothold with young gamers, but let's speak to all the segments of gamers, not just the the highly competitive ones. So we now reach, with that strategy that we put into place during COVID, about 70 million unique under-18 gamers a month namely in games like Minecraft and Roblox. Um, That's sizable reach, really, second only to the people who make those platforms themselves, Microsoft and and Roblox. And so we have sizable reach in heft, and we speak to a very diverse audience of gamers. So now we're talking about there's 3 billion gamers on the planet, and in-game advertising is projected to be a $56 billion um, um, category by 2024. Yep. We think that's far more interesting than just the, the more narrow segment of just eSports.
3: And uh, do you expect to make a profit in your your time at the company?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we've talked to, to we just had our earnings call. In fact, we took um, investors into the metaverse. We did a video um, um, earnings announcement. And and what we talked about is the, the fact that not only are we delivering um, faster on the top line, but we're also seeing our operating losses shrinking right. faster than expected this year. And so we're very mindful in the current state yep. of the market that while investors last year were pushing us hard on top line, top line,
3: now,
4: now they want it
2: both. They want right. top line delivery, and they want us yep. to get cash flow positive faster.
4: All right, and thank you so much for joining us. Ann Han, CEO and chairwoman of Super League Gaming.
3: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Before
4: the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
1: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, your heroes in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business.
2: Sports is and not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I
1: didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to the deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television,
0: or BTV Plus. Brought to you by Sherm: A Better Workplace, A Better World.